Welcome to Trial Tested, a podcast by the American College of Trial Lawyers, an enlightening discussion about life and law created to elevate and inspire trial attorneys. My name is Amy Gunn, and I will be your host for today's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the American College Trial Lawyers podcast, Trial Tested. I am Amy Gunn, a fellow from St. Louis, and today I'm thrilled to bring you an interview with Lord David Panic KC. David was born and raised in London, England, where he attended Bancroft School before studying law at Hertford College in Oxford. He graduated with a BA and postgraduate Bachelor of Civil Law degree, which promoted his BA to an MA. He was called to the bar at Gray's Inn in 1979. After this, he was one of the panel of junior counsel to the Crown from 1988 to 1992. In 1992, David was appointed Queen's Counsel and now bears the title King's Counsel following the death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. From 1998 to 2005, David served as Deputy High Court Judge. He has appeared in over 100 cases before the Appellate Committee of the House of Lords and has regularly appeared before courts including in Hong Kong, Brunei, Gibraltar, Trinidad, British Virgin Islands, Bermuda, and the Cayman Islands as well as the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom, the European Court of Justice, and the European Court of Human Rights. On November 3, 2008, his title was gazetted as Baron Panic of Radlett in the county of Hertfordshire and arose as a crossbencher in the House of Lords. Good afternoon, Lord Panic. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, Amy. Do call me David. It's a great pleasure to be appearing on your podcast. Thank you so much. We really do appreciate the time that you're taking to sit with us today and to learn a little bit about yourself. So can you give us your background? How did you get to where you are? Well, I've been a barrister for 40 years. I started off as a junior barrister. I became a Queen's Counsel, and my status has changed, of course, in the last week. Sadly, I'm now a King's Counsel. Automatically, all Queen's Counsel became King's Counsel. That simply means I have a certain seniority in the profession. I also have other jobs. I'm a member of the House of Lords, so I'm a member of the upper house of the legislature, a bit like your Senate, except nobody votes for us. We get appointed, which is very nice because we don't have to be re-elected. And that takes up part of my time. I do academic work as well. I'm a fellow of All Souls College in Oxford, which I much enjoy. I had read that you're a cross-bencher in the House of Lords. Could you help us understand what it means to be yes, a cross-bencher? cross-bencher simply means that uh, I'm not aligned to any party. I was appointed by an independent committee which seeks to ensure that there are people in the House of Lords who have expertise in relation to different areas. So the House of Lords contains a number of lawyers, doctors, scientists, many people who are not practicing politicians. And the idea is that we look at legislation that comes from the elected House of Commons, we revise it, we make suggestions, most of which the House of Commons accepts because they're on technical matters. Sometimes we pick a fight with them, but we normally lose because, and rightly so, because they're elected and we're not. You have been involved recently in two lead constitutional law cases involving Brexit. How did you get involved? And tell us a little bit about those. Well, it's unusual to have constitutional cases in the United Kingdom because we don't have a constitution. 
We don't have a <laughs> written constitution. <laughs> of course, we have an unwritten constitution. We have constitutional conventions. But unlike the United States and to some extent Canada, it's not the case that uh, every aspect of political debate potentially gets decided by the courts by reference to a constitutional document. But there are unwritten constitutional principles, and both of the Brexit cases raise such questions. I mean, you will remember, Amy, it was a highly contentious political decision that the United Kingdom took. Should we leave the EU, the European Union, after having been a member since 1973. And for political reasons, the Conservative government decided to have a referendum. And in the referendum, the people voted just to leave the EU. And this was uh, highly, highly contentious. And after the vote, the government decided that it would leave the EU without legislation, without going back to the House of Commons and uh, having an act of parliament to deal with this. And that was the issue in the first Brexit case. Could the executive take so momentous a decision or did it need the approval of parliament, the House of Commons and the House of Lords? And I appeared for a woman called Gina Miller, a businesswoman who was the figurehead. There were many people who were concerned about this breach of constitutional principle, that is the absence of legislation. But she was the only one prepared to put her head above the parapet and be the figurehead. And uh, in doing so, she was subjected to enormous abuse by people, threats by people to murder her, to rape her. It was deeply, deeply unpleasant. And uh, she's a very brave woman. And I was asked to represent her, and I did represent her, and we succeeded in the courts. Again, it was highly contentious. After we won in the high court, some newspapers had headlines describing the judges who decided in our favor as, quote, enemies of the people, unquote. There was much criticism of the then Minister for Justice, the Lord Chancellor, for not defending the judges. And that Minister of Justice was one Liz Truss, who has moved on to higher and greater things. She is now our Prime Minister. And we won again in the Supreme Court. We won by eight votes to three in the Supreme Court. And the matter went back to Parliament, which did approve us leaving the EU. So the constitutional principle was established, but it made no difference to the substantive issue. This country, the United Kingdom, has left the EU. That was the first case. May I ask you about that first case? As I understood it, and I don't mean to simplify it, it was an effort by the executive, the government, the prime minister, to simply leave the EU because it was a treaty, essentially. And the government can enter into treaties and can withdraw treaties. And that was sort of the principle under which the government was operating. Is that pretty close? It's more than pretty close. It's absolutely spot on because that was the government's argument, that it is a well-established principle of common law, applicable, as I understand it, in the United States and Canada as well, that treaty-making and leaving treaties are matters for the executive. But the difference here was that the United Kingdom's membership of the EU was not just on the international plane. There was an act of parliament 
which incorporated EU law into domestic law and gave it priority in domestic law. So the argument we advanced was that given that EU law is part of domestic law with priority over other statutes, it can only be repealed by domestic law. And that's what the court accepted. But it was highly, highly contentious. Many lawyers took a different view. Three members of the Supreme Court dissented, and a large number of academics were very, very cross. The time frame was... Brexit vote was June of 2016. Yes. Miller 1 was decided in January of 2017. Yes. So this is a short time frame within which to identify the issue, to brief and argue the issue. Do things normally move that quickly? No. This was unusually speedy. And it was speedy because this was a matter of central political concern. This determined how the country would be governed because EU law, while we were a member of the EU, governed all aspects of British life, from taxation to agriculture to customs, immigration, all sorts of areas. It had to be decided speedily, and it was decided speedily. The Supreme Court and the High Court moved with more than all deliberate speed. They really got on with it, and that was very welcome on all sides. Part of that speed, perhaps, was that Prime Minister May had promised to give this notice in order to get out of the EU, only notice has to be given. Yes. And she had promised to give that notice by, I think, the end of March of 2017. So certainly that time frame was ticking, and I assume on everyone's mind, to try to get to a resolution. Because was she planning to give notice if your lawsuit hadn't been filed? Well, she'd already announced that she was going to give notice, which as a matter of EU law would have triggered the United Kingdom leaving because the rules were that once the United Kingdom gives notice, then it would leave the EU at the latest two years afterwards. So our argument was that the giving of the notice was like the firing of a bullet and the bullet would hit the target and the consequence would be that a whole mass of domestic law would be repealed. And that's why we said Parliament had to have a say in this matter and the issue was an issue that is common in many countries that have constitutions. And the issue is who governs? Is it the executive or is it the legislature? And that's what the case was all about. And the fact that the legislature gave its approval is not the point. They were required to consider the matter and that established an important principle. Because in the United Kingdom, I don't speak of any other country because I don't know enough about other countries, but in the United Kingdom, one of the central political developments of the last 30, 40 years has been an increase in the powers of the executive. It contains more people, it has more power, it's more reluctant to share that power with the legislature. And that's really what that first case was all about. To establish a limit, so to speak. 
Well, to establish that an important decision that affects the law of the land must be made by the legislature, not by the prime minister. Right. And so the parliament then did approve. Yes. Notice was officially given. What happened next? Well, what happened next was that this policy of leaving the EU, of Brexit, was so controversial that there was a stalemate for the next two, three years. And the reason for that was that an agreement needed to be reached with the EU as to the terms on which the United Kingdom would leave. And it's like a marriage. You've been married to someone since 1973. You're leaving in 2016, you know, what, 43 years Later, there's a lot of stuff that needs to be resolved. <laughs> Divided And up. it couldn't be resolved because those who had argued for Brexit argued that all will be well and there would be no detriment to the United Kingdom. And those who'd argued against said, well, there are all sorts of problems. And many of those problems arose and Parliament was in a stalemate. And this led to Theresa May, who was the Prime Minister, being removed. It resulted in the election by the Conservative Party of Boris Johnson as the Prime Minister. And he was determined, understandably, that the will of the people in the referendum should be carried out, that Britain should leave the EU. But he was overkeen. And that led to the second case. Yes. And those who listen to this podcast know that I think very chronologically. So we've got 2017, Miller 1 is decided. You go into 2017 and 2018, there is a negotiation about the terms of withdrawal, ultimately unsuccessful. Theresa May is replaced by Boris Johnson, and that was in, I believe, the summer of 2019. Boris Johnson became prime minister in June of 2019. What steps did he take to get Brexit where he wanted it to be? Well, he was determined to get Brexit done. And his problem was that he had a parliament that was riven. The parliament was unable to agree anything. He was unable to call a general election because the power of the prime minister to call a general election during the five years of his term or her term had been removed. So he decided that the best way to get a deal with the Europeans was to suspend parliament or to use the technical term prorogue parliament. Now, the prorogation of Parliament is something that happens at the end of a session. It happens for a week, two weeks, in order to allow time for the new legislative programme, the Queen's speech, now the King's speech, to be prepared. But what Boris Johnson decided to do was to prorogue Parliament, not for that technical reason, but to prevent Parliament from interfering with his uh, attempts to resolve Brexit. He thought they were getting in the way. He was probably right. They were getting in the way. And to do that for six weeks. And the issue, the constitutional issue in the second Gina Miller case, because she was again the claimant, was again, who is supreme? Is it the executive or is it parliament? And our argument was that the executive is answerable to parliament. And therefore, the executive cannot have an untrammeled power 
to remove Parliament, to suspend Parliament, to prevent Parliament from supervising the conduct of the executive. That was the issue. And that particular issue had never come up before? Well, it had never come up. This was one of the arguments the government used. They said there is no precedent for a court of law telling the prime minister that he may not prorogue parliament. And they were right. Our answer to that point was that there was no precedent because no prime minister in history had so abused his power in order to prorogue parliament, in order to avoid scrutiny by the legislature. Of course, it wasn't formally the prime minister who made this decision. The prime minister in British constitutional principle advises Her Majesty, advises the sovereign. And the constitutional principle is that Her Majesty accepts the advice of her prime minister. And that's what happened. The prime minister, or rather his ministers, went to Balmoral. They advised Her Majesty. She approved. Prorogation was announced. I was in Botswana. I was on holiday with my family and messages got through to me because we prepared for this eventuality. We thought that Boris Johnson may well do this because he'd hinted that he might do this. And we started proceedings immediately. I arrived back at Heathrow Airport for my family holiday on the Monday morning. And the case started on the Thursday. You mentioned before how speedily these cases can come on. In the High Court, it started that same week on the Thursday, and we lost. We lost 3-0. There were three judges in the High Court led by the Lord Chief Justice, and he said this is an exercise of prerogative power. And however abusive it may be said to be, it's not for the courts to interfere. It's for politicians to interfere if they wish to do so. If the Prime Minister can get his decision through the Parliament, it's not for the courts. And we appealed. We went to the Supreme Court and we were heard in the Supreme Court, what, about a month later? Again, very, very speedily. Written arguments were presented, detailed analysis. We had a, I think, four-day hearing in the Supreme Court because unlike your Supreme Court, we're not confined to 30 minutes in normal cases for an argument somewhat more for a very important case. But we, I mean, I must have had a day or so for my argument. Wow. You know, constantly interrupted, of course, by the judges. And we won. We won 11-0. The Supreme Court said that prerogative power or not, this was an abuse of power. And it is the role of the court to say if power is being abused. And here it was because a minister of the crown acts unlawfully in advising Her Majesty to prorogue Parliament, to suspend Parliament, if it has the consequence that it will prevent parliamentary scrutiny of an important subject. This begs a lot of questions, how important, how long the prorogation, but the court said it didn't need to decide those questions. It was looking at these facts and saying that this was unlawful, and that's what it did, a remarkable decision. And indeed, they went even further. They said that the prorogation was so unlawful that Parliament had not been lawfully prorogued. And Parliament, therefore, said the court, was still in session. 
And so we all went back to Parliament the next day. So the Miller 2 decision was September 24th, 2019. And as you say, because the prorogation was never actually lawful, you went back the next day and did you start debating the Brexit deal at that time? Yeah, absolutely. Well, first debates in the House of Commons and the House of Lords were motions from the Labour opposition, highly critical of Boris Johnson as the Prime Minister because he had given advice to Her Majesty, which the courts had ruled to be unlawful. And they said he should apologise, which he sort of half-heartedly did. And um, the stalemate then continued. Brexit was really the only subject of discussion in Parliament. That continued for another couple of months until he managed Boris Johnson to persuade the other parties to have an election, a general election. And of course, he triumphed. His uh, slogan was, get Brexit done. The people of the United Kingdom thought that was a very attractive slogan. They were fed up with the paralysis. And he did get Brexit done. And uh, he won an overwhelming majority, an 80-seat majority at the end of 2019. And two and a half years later, he's out. And there have been scandals, if you will, related to the Johnson term. Do you think that where the country is now with Brexit had anything to do with Boris falling out of favor? Or is it more scandal, COVID, those types of things? Well, I think it's a combination. I think if it were only resentment of his role in Brexit, he'd still be prime minister. But there was a loss of confidence, not just in people generally see the by-election results, but also in his own party by an accretion of dubious decisions relating to supporting colleagues who'd behaved badly or were alleged to have behaved badly. Also, the scandal, as Parliament and many people saw it, of Boris Johnson being fined for breaches of the coronavirus regulations, because there were periods of time, as you know, where there were regulations that prevented people from socialising, from having parties, because of the risk of coronavirus. And particularly poignant were the pictures of the funeral of the Queen's husband, the Duke of Edinburgh, where she was sitting in splendid isolation because she couldn't be comforted in the church by her family. And it transpired that the night before that funeral, there was a party in Downing Street, number 10 Downing Street, and Boris Johnson was fined and the confidence was lost. And there were various other decisions that led to his own party rebelling against him. He wasn't defeated by the opposition. And over the summer, the Conservative Party has chosen a new leader. I should mention for the sake of completion that having acted against Boris Johnson in the Brexit cases, I'm now acting for him because he's facing an inquiry before the Committee of Privileges of the House of Commons to assess whether he lied to Parliament because he told Parliament there had been no breaches of the coronavirus regulations. And he denies that. He says when he made those statements, he thought there had been no breaches. And he has published an opinion from me in relation to the procedure and the substance of the approach being taken against him, I've said that contempt of parliament requires that he knew what he was saying to the House of Commons was false when he said it, and he's not being offered a fair procedure 
because the committee has said it will act on evidence of anonymous witnesses. They won't tell him who the witnesses are. I'm very dubious about that in my published opinion. So having acted against him, I now have him as a client. (laughs) And how did that come about? Did he choose you? Well, he asked me. I mean, my principle is that I will act really for anyone. I don't form a view as to the wisdom, the attractiveness, the merits of my clients. My job is to argue cases for them and to advise them. And that's what I try to do. I've acted for many people I admire, many people I despise. And that's, I think, typical of the bar in London. And uh, I think that's right in principle. You should not be associated with your client. Your job is to represent them, to do the best you can, to be argumentative on their behalf, inquisitive, apologetic as the occasion demands, but always as persuasive as you can be. And that brings us to your topic here at our conference about advocacy, particularly the ethics of advocacy. What are some overall principles that you believe very strongly about with respect to that topic? Well, the founding principle is that advocacy in court is of fundamental importance. I think it's a great thing that issues of law are determined by an independent judge after he or she has heard the competing arguments of both sides by counsel who normally argue the issues rather than shout at each other or insult each other, and the judge decides. And it is essential to the rule of law in that respect that each side is represented by someone whose role is to present the case as best they are able for their client, to say what that client would say for themselves if they were trained, articulate enough to do so. And that means that um, the counsel, the barrister, is not concerned with the morality of what his or her client has done, although you may give advice, of course, to the client outside the courtroom. But in court, you are simply there to present the case. And I mean, this needs to be justified as a moral principle because it raises very difficult issues. I mean, for example, in the 19th century, the philosopher Jeremy Bentham complained that if a criminal has committed a theft, then someone who helps him to escape will be prosecuted and will be convicted as an accomplice. But, said Bentham, what the non-advocate is hanged for, the advocate is paid for and admired. And there are many examples of barristers who have performed a role that is morally dubious. I mean, critics of the ethics of advocacy can point, for example, to the memoirs of an English high court judge, Sir Henry Hawkins, appointed to the bench in 1876. And he says in his memoirs, I quote, my greatest delight was the obtaining of an acquittal of someone whose guilt nobody could doubt. And many, many counsel in all countries have been concerned by the morality of uh, advocacy. I can give you many examples. One of the founding fathers, Alexander Hamilton, wrote in 1786, it's in Ron Chernow's biography, that uh, after he secured a not guilty verdict on behalf of a client 
who he thought was obviously guilty, he wrote that he decided I would never again take up a cause in which I was convinced I ought not to prevail. More recently, there was the radical US lawyer William Kunstler, best known for acting for the defense in the infamous Chicago 7 trial in 1969. He said, I'm not a lawyer for hire. I only defend those I love. Well, that's not the principle of advocacy I adopt. (laughs) And if I did, I think I'd be unemployed for most of the year. One of the questions I think that's asked is, are you a true advocate if you refuse a client? And it's interesting because in my practice and many of the practices of our fellows, you really develop your practice on one side or the other. I do plaintiff's work. A lot of our members only do defense work, whether it's criminal, whether it's civil. So setting aside conflicts, can you be a true advocate if you say, I just don't want to represent you? Well, that's not the principle in the United Kingdom. The principle in the United Kingdom under our code of conduct of the bar is what is called the cab rank principle. And that means that unless you have a conflict or unless you're too busy or unless you would suffer some sort of personal embarrassment, you know one of the witnesses or one of the parties, you are obliged in an area in which you practice to accept instructions from anyone. doesn't matter. And there are some people in Britain who appear only on one side, but by and large, most counsel both prosecute and defend in criminal cases. In personal injuries cases, they will appear for claimants and they will appear for defendants. And of course, the real benefit of that is that it makes you, if I may respectfully say so, a better lawyer. I'm sure you're an excellent lawyer, but it makes you a better lawyer because if you've appeared on both sides, then you know what the prosecutor is going to say. You know what the defense counsel is going to say. It also I think, makes it much more interesting. So I appear, I mean, I mainly do administrative law, constitutional law, human rights law, and I appear for claimants, but I also appear for regulatory authorities, for government departments. And that's, for me, what makes my practice enjoyable. I would find it far less stimulating if I only appear on one side of the court. It also, I think, makes it more demanding, but that's part of the fun, part of the challenge. And I'm sufficiently old that I like a challenge. (laughs) But I've very often appeared for, say, the Secretary of State for the Home Department in immigration cases, and I then appear in other cases for immigration or asylum claimants, as long as the issue is not the same issue or type of issue. So there's a real conflict barrier. That is fundamental. But there's no bar on appearing against the same client, the client that you have represented. And it's even more complicated in the United Kingdom because my understanding in the United States certainly is that the conflicts will apply not just to you personally, but to your firm. Correct. Now, A barrister is a member of a set of barristers' chambers, and I have colleagues, my chambers, probably about a 100 of them, who are all independent practitioners, and I very often appear against them. They're on the other side of the case, and there are strict walls 
we used to call them Chinese rules. I'm not sure we can anymore, but you understand the concepts that ensures that no information seeps. And sometimes the clients find that very difficult to understand, particularly American clients. They find it very difficult to understand that I can appear for them and my colleague in the same set of chambers with whom I share the costs of those chambers because you know we all make a contribution out of our earnings to chambers expenditure that's how it operates but conflicts are one thing subject to conflicts a barrister appears on each side and i think that's very important because the barrister is not expressing their own view they're not expressing his or her views or preferences they are a gun for hire. That's their job. And they say what uh, they can say for the client, subject, of course, to ethical constraints. You mustn't mislead the court. You must always disclose to the court authorities, whether they're in your favor or against you. I once did a case in the Supreme Court for the Secretary of State for the Home Department, and we won because the other side discovered and disclosed a judgment of the Canadian Supreme Court, which was in favor of the uh, Secretary of State. The other side found it and disclosed it, and the Supreme Court was very persuaded by it. So there are ethical constraints, and rightly so, as to the way you argue your cases. You are also involved in human rights law. How did you get started in that area? Well, uh, the way you get started in areas of law is pure serendipity. I mean, you have to be in the right place at the right time. And I started as a barrister in 1980, and human rights law was just beginning to develop. We had no Human Rights Act, but we were a member, still are, of the European Convention on Human Rights. And I began to work with a very senior barrister called Anthony Lester, QC. And my first case was his junior counsel, where he was representing a man from Singapore who had been convicted in Singapore of drug trafficking. The sentence on him was the mandatory sentence of death. And Singapore in those days, its final court of appeal was the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council, which sits in London. And that's a judicial body. And my first case was as Anthony Lester's junior counsel, I didn't say a word, sitting behind him while he tried to persuade the judges in London to allow this man's appeal, essentially on a constitutional ground, that it was a mandatory death penalty. And mandatory death penalties, we argued, relying on the United States Supreme Court cases, I think they were called Woodson was one of them and others in about 1976, was unconstitutional, we said. And we lost. And um, my first client, Mr. Ong R. Chuan, was hanged. And that's not a very good start. You can only improve after that. <laughs> oh, my goodness. There are not many people at the bar <laughs> who can say that their first client was hanged. And then I developed an expertise, would be putting it too highly. I did many human rights cases. And the more you do, the more you're regarded as an expert. And then the Human Rights Act was passed by Parliament in 1998 which made the Human Rights Convention part of domestic law. So there were more cases. And they were interesting cases because they raised profound political, ethical, social issues, many of them. What would you say if you had to look back on your career? Are you able to say what you've enjoyed the most about the practice of law? Oh, I think it's the diversity. It's the variety of the cases. Each day in court is different. 
you really don't know what's going to happen. I mean, you can predict with some degree of accuracy what the judge is likely to think, to say, to do, but you can never be sure. You never know what your witnesses are going to say. You never know what the other side are going to say. And I always tell people that I think an essential element of advocacy, as important as speaking, is listening, to try to hear and understand what the judge is saying and thinking and what the other side are saying or not saying. But it is the variety. And it's also the excitement when you win. I like to win. Everybody in the the law likes to win. And the (laughs) despondency of going back to my chambers when the Court of Appeal has said that my argument raises no arguable point of law, that's terrible. But it's the excitement and the variety. What advice would you have for lawyers just coming out of schooling and getting started in their practice? Oh, I would say be an advocate. I would say that it is a tremendous occupation, tremendous profession. You need to work extremely hard. You can't skint on the work that you need to do. I collect, it's a cathartic collection of cuttings about advocacy and advocates whose advocacy was unappealing. And I collect it because it's reassuring to bear in mind that your own performance could always be so much worse. And I tell students these stories in order to encourage them that you really need to work very hard. I particularly like the story of counsel, Roger Phipps, he was called. He was asked in 2008 by the US Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit in New Orleans why he had not addressed in his argument a relevant judgment of the United States Supreme Court. And he replied, I try not to read that many cases, Your Honor. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> and I tell students they need to be better prepared than the advocate who was reprimanded in 2011 by Judge Charles Simpson sitting in Louisville, Kentucky. And he reprimanded counsel for his failure to appreciate, I quote, Wikipedia is not an acceptable source of legal authority in the United States District Court. So I advise aspiring advocates that it's great fun, it's enormously rewarding, but you're going to have to work very hard. Do you have any regrets? Are there any thoughts that you have that you would have done differently? Oh, I think all advocates have cases that they would have done differently. There's the famous aphorism, isn't there, of Justice Robert Jackson of the U.S. Supreme Court who said that every advocate in every case advances three different arguments. The first argument is the one that he or she has prepared, which is thorough and it's detailed and it's persuasive. The second argument that the advocate presents is the one they actually deliver on the day, which is disjointed, (laughs) unconvincing, and disappointing. And the third argument that the advocate has is the absolutely devastating point that they thought of the night after the court case. (laughs) And that is a universal truth. So, of course, I have cases I would have presented differently, things I would have done differently. But by and large, I've had so far a thoroughly enjoyable career. Which brings me to my last question about what is ahead for you? What do you have planned? Well, judges have to retire in the United Kingdom now at the age of 75. Barristers don't. 
And I've appeared over the years against a number of barristers who should have retired a long time earlier. I also appeared against one enormously distinguished advocate, Sir Sidney Kentridge, who appeared in the Supreme Court against me on his 90th birthday and did a fantastic job. I don't think I'll still be arguing cases at the age of 90, but I'd quite like to go on a bit longer. I'm relying on friends and colleagues to uh, take me to one side and tell me that one day, in I hope the distant future, that perhaps it will be time to go and do something else. But until that happens, I propose to carry on while I'm enjoying it. Well, in the meantime, I certainly hope and continue to wish you the best of success, particularly in the area of the constitutional law. Those are remarkable cases and how honored you must feel to have been a part of that. Certainly. So thank you so much for joining me today. We really appreciate your giving us your time today and at our conference. Well, thank you, Amy. Thank you for listening. Thank you for the uh, sensitive questions. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Trial Tested. Our next episode drops on Thursday, so please subscribe now and hear every inspiring episode.